Thank you for tuning in to the Identity and Me podcast. I'm your host, Stena. The featured guest in this episode is Siata Besa, a licensed attorney in the state of New York who I met through my work as a DEIJ practitioner. Our conversation mostly explores how she has processed a few of her social identities, along with the lack of diversity in the field of law. My friend and colleague, Dr. Sohoi Lee, who is a licensed clinical psychologist, joins me at the end of that conversation to share her professional insight about our discussion. Enjoy. The number one stunner in the house. I'm here with Siata Besa, who I met several years ago when I started in my role as associate dean. She was visiting the academy at the time for an alumni meeting of some sort and stopped by my office to meet the team and ask what our needs were. And from there, we've had a few more interactions I'd characterize as being really chill and profound. And um, I'm so happy to be interviewing Siata on the podcast. Siata, how's it going? All's good here in New York City. Uh, the temperature is finally cooling down. I'm thoroughly enjoying the um, revamp of NYC summer and uh, going to all the free events that I can and some of the paid events. Uh, we had a conversation prior to the podcast about a week ago where Seattle told me about all these cool things that were happening in New York City. So do you mind sharing with my audience what you've been up to during the <laughs> summer? Uh, sure. Um, it kind of started out at the academy for my high school reunion. Uh, then it trickled down into a few events in June. Uh, one of them was Shakespeare in the Park, Richard III, starring Denai Garay, which was awesome. Uh, then I went to a Biggie tribute symphony at Lincoln Center, and a lot of people got dressed up. I myself got dressed up and had a cane in Biggie's honor. Right. Uh, after that, there was a Method Man show at Sotheby's. Ugh. How that got to be, I really don't know, but it had something to do with NFTs. I'm not really clear on what NFTs are still, but that was that. Then there was Pride, Harlem Pride, and the brat showed up with her wife, and she performed. Okay. Um, went down to Maryland for my cousin who retired from the Navy, 20 years in the Navy, and that was ceremonies at the Pentagon, which was really cool. Um, played softball. I went on a tugboat cruise. Uh, done a lot of hiking, bird watching. Um, yeah, I feel like I've forgotten a few things, but that seems like a lot there. Oh, yeah, you had an Octavia Butler concert uh, at Lincoln Center as well. And everything I've mentioned so far is free except for the tugboat cruise. You've had an eventful summer, very eventful. I have, I have and it's not over yet. <laughs> All right, before I pivot to the questions here, I'm I'm so stuck on the experiences you had in New York over the summer or in the city over the summer. I'm thinking about the Biggie Smalls concert that you went to, yeah. the symphony um, tribute. Yeah. When they were performing, did people sing along? Did they perform warning? That's what that's my Biggie joint, warning. They perform warning. 
Ah. Not as many people sung along as I did. I stood up the whole time and sung every single lyric. Yeah. And I was really, really into it. Um, a lot of people were, it was, people were sitting down. It wasn't that hot. So I don't know why people weren't up. At the end of it, people got up and started to dance, but everybody was pretty civilized. It was weird. Interesting. How, yeah. how can you sit through a Biggie Smalls performance? It was an orchestra. And I think not everybody knew the, um, the music like I did. So I think if you, you've not played an instrument, you don't know the music without the lyrics, they didn't have the lyrics mm. displayed. So I think some people were just, you know, confused, but I understood the music. I played instruments. So I saw the playback between the two sides. They had brass on one side, wind on one side, bass on another side. And it was really cool to me, but I could tell that other people were just like, what's going on until they recognized one of the tunes that was pretty unique. Who the heck is this page in yeah. me? Five? And did you say heck or did you drop it? Oh, no, no. Yeah. Who the heck is this page in me at 546 in the morning, cracking dawn, and I'm yawning. Right. Wipe oh, the cold out my eyes. Yes. <laughs> this page of me. Why? Oh, yeah. Um, And I will add a quick biggie story. So I'm at a conference with other professionals. Um, it's late in the evening and uh, there was this after party and I was told that people turn up at these conferences and I didn't know what to expect. There was a DJ playing in this crib and um, it was a small little room pre-pandemic, small room, a lot of bodies in this small room, shoulder to shoulder. And my man cut on Juicy. <laughs> it was one of the most uplifting moments in my life, really. Like everybody in the room sang that word for word and you could tell it was coming from their soul i'm glad you had that experience oh it was wonderful it was wonderful all right so siata how do you identify it depends on the day and who asks you. all right so, so today I, tuesday evening for this identity in me podcast how do you identify i'm identifying as a new yorker all right <laughs> no seriously though i it's one of those questions kind of similar to what do you do I never answer in the way that people expect because I just feel like it's a it's a question that begets an answer that is nonsensical. Mm. So it's like, how do you identify? Well, I'm a human being. We're all human beings, right? We look different from different places. But I get where people are trying to go. So I'm a New Yorker. I'm black. I'm Liberian. I'm gay. I'm a woman. All this kind of stuff, you know. Um, but you know, I'm also an avid reader, and hiker, bird watcher. So I, there's various, I, I identify as a lot of different things. And on any given day, depending on what I'm doing, I'll start with one thing and then get into the others. Talk to me a little bit about this matter of identifying as a human being. Where does that response come from? That there's nothing called race. It's, it's a made up concept that we get too locked into and it takes us away from our commonality as human beings. When you get away from your commonality as human beings, it allows for other things to easily come into play and for people to get manipulated into angst and hatred playing off these made up things called race or ethnicity or whatever, whatever you want to call it. So I'm black, you're white, you're Asian. But at the bottom line, we're all human beings that started in one place, whether you believe 
religion or science. We all started in one place and then we went to other places and started looking different because we were closer or further away from the sun. And so our features started to look different, but we're all just part of the human race just because we have different colors or different eye shapes or lip shapes or nose shapes. That's just happenstance based on where you are on this earth and how we got spread. Now, the issue of race, it was kind of made up so that we could be subjugated, you know, at a certain point in, in history. And unfortunately, we were pretty locked in. We got locked in and we never let it go. Um, and this whole concept of honoring the fact that we're all human beings, it's tough for people to accept or to reorganize your brain around. But I think it, it makes more sense when you think about even politics, history, economics, Think about it on a human level. There's so much more in common that a lot of us who look differently were on the same line with. And if we thought that way, then we could all move forward instead of battling against each other and allowing other people to rise to the top. So now I got to go in a completely different direction. How do we go about deconstructing race? Uh, it's, It's a very, very, very heavy lift. And it starts by just talking about being a human being but that is hard within itself because not that many people want to identify as a human being period end of story Mm. um it takes a lot of education it takes a lot of discussion um a lot of back and forth a lot of rewiring of brain and acceptance of history real history not made up history in terms of the construct of race where it all came from, the construct of socioeconomic status in our various places throughout, throughout the world. And that's a lot. And I think that the lift just gets heavier and heavier as we're in the now, where you have social media, you have quote unquote, what do you call it? Fake news or false, yeah. what do they call the facts, alternative facts. Yeah, yeah. And You've got rid of civic education. You've got rid of a lot of basic aspects of education, history. And so as we get further and further from that, it gets more and more difficult to identify as human beings and see the various commonalities. Now, um, off of that question, I'm led to ask, do you feel as though your different identities, your different salient identities have informed your life experiences as a human being? Yes, they have. In what ways? Well, there have been a lot of interesting ways, and some of the ways have been placed upon me as opposed to me informing those ways. Mm. So in this country, I'm a Black person, or some people think I'm African-American, and they believe that I'm descendant of slaves because of the way I look and the way I sound. And so that identity and who I am is put upon me in this country based on this country's history. So I'm placed into a bucket. And I am reacted to in a certain way um, that I have no control over. And sometimes I act in a certain way because I think that other people are reacting to me in a certain way. And so that construct is outside of myself. Um, Being a masculine presenting woman, that's another construct that's out of myself because that's just who I am. But because I present that way, some people feel I'm threatening or this and that and that and this. And so all my identities inform how I walk and carry myself throughout the day. And my fears, whether they're rational or not, that I experience throughout the day in terms of how people are going to respond to me just living in my skin. 
Um, when I'm down south as a New Yorker, I act a different way as well because I just have this understanding or fear that they don't like Yankees sometimes. And some people have told me that. So I try to act a little bit slower and more Southern in my presentation. I can't change the way I speak. I have a very heavy New York accent. But I, I couldn't try tell. To... I couldn't tell. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Hold on. Say, say water. No, I will not. You say Khan <laughs> Hobbit Yacht. <laughs> and, you know, and so I don't say it that way. I don't have a Boston accent. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but you know, it, it informs depending on where I am. It informs how I act. You know, um, if I'm in a, a, a in a group of immigrants, then I'm a different way as well because there's a duality between having an immigrant background but being raised in America. So I'm not fully one way or the other. So it's the it's the outside definitions of the various aspects of me that inform how I move in this world. Do you prefer to be referred to as a queer black woman? or a Black woman who's queer, or neither? Neither. I, I don't identify as queer. I usually identify as gay or lesbian. So Talk to me not, about that, please. Well, I don't really know all the things that make queer. It's a yeah. little bit new to me. Yeah. Um, but I know what lesbian means, and I know what gay means. Gay used to be lesbian, but then it was like gay or lesbian. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm lesbian. But for the most part, I just say I'm gay. Um, but I never say I'm a black gay woman. I'll just say whatever in the, depending on where I am. So it's not like comma, comma, it's aunt, black and gay and woman or gay and black and woman or woman and black and gay. Um, as opposed to like putting one thing as primary. So I, and, and to answer your question, I don't care if somebody calls me a black gay woman. I don't care if somebody calls me a black queer woman or queer black woman or woman black queer it doesn't it doesn't bother me i found myself tripping up recently um trying to identify the author of a book that i read recently awesome book titled ordinary girls by yakira diaz um who's puerto rican and identifies as queer in the book as well and so in talking about the author i started saying oh um yakira diaz is a puerto rican who's queer and i'm like hold on but is she a queer woman who's Puerto Rican? Is that my story to tell? Or is that how I um, interpret how she told her story in the book? Mm-hmm. I've had experiences with people who have preferred an order in which they're referred to. And so um, mm-hmm. I had an opportunity to ask the question here and thought I would. So has your journey um, as a queer Black woman been seamless? No. And it's not because um queer Black or a woman. It's just Life isn't seamless, no matter. And I'm sorry, I want to jump in real quick. Sorry. Uh Um, As a gay black woman, you did Uh know a couple of minutes ago that you don't prefer (laughs) to turn queer. And I wanted to note that I heard that and I apologize for inserting queer instead. But please continue. Yeah, sure thing. Um, Yeah, life isn't seamless. Um, Being gay coming out was not seamless. And an immigrant as well, growing up in a Christian household, all of that. So no, it wasn't seamless. Um, being black was an interesting thing in this country to begin with, because I'm I'm a different black for a lot of people, and so there were a lot of things that I was not raised with that I didn't know until I got to college or afterwards. Mm. So I didn't know much about like civil rights, the Vietnam War, World War II, and what that meant for black people serving, until I took a course in college on the Vietnam War, 
but I was assumed to have known and the teacher asked me directly, what do you feel about the civil rights in Vietnam? I was like, I have no idea. I'm reading this book with you. I'm learning with you. I don't know anything about this stuff. That's why I'm taking a class. Um, So, and, you know, I had some black friends um, who were, you know, their families are from this country told me that I wasn't like, I was a different kind of black. And I didn't realize that until I got to college either. Um, so being black in this country is interesting. And then being of Liberian descent is interesting because I'm not entirely Liberian to my family in Liberia or friends in Liberia, or even some of my relatives who were born there, raised here. I'm a different kind of Liberian. It's a, it's an interesting concept that I, I learn new things every day about being black in this country. Um, that I didn't know a lot of before, you know, like some of the struggles or the way in which people think about Black people in this country, the way in which Black people in this country think about people of African descent, the way in which African descendant people think about Black people in this country, or like Caribbean people, all this kind of stuff. And forget about like um, Black people from South America, that's a whole nother construct. Um, and I mentioned that because I live in a Dominican, highly Dominican neighborhood. So it's it, that's a whole nother can of worms to get into but being black is a is the one that's been i think the the least seamless trying to understand where i fit in in the black in this country um when i go home i'm just i'm just a liberian and you're not really black so on the continent you're just whatever tribe you're from but when you come here you're you're black you know same like if you come from china you're not chinese in china you're just whatever you're from in china yeah 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 here and you become Asian or Asian American, it's like, how did that happen? Yeah, you know? Yeah. And so I learned that whole concept late in life in terms of that crazy difference that makes me want to say I'm a human being versus black or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, the environment <laughs> determines how people define you or how people see you. Mm-hmm. Right. But that was the one that was that's been the least seamless in my life. Being a woman, I don't know. I think maybe that's the easiest one uh for me. I've uh, grown up with a lot of strong women in my life. I've always been headstrong and confident around my gender identity. Generally understand the differences and how there's pushback in the professional world or sometimes in the educational environment in terms of the woman's voice. But I've never held back or never felt like I should be silent or have felt silenced as a woman or held back, to be quite honest, as a woman, maybe because I'm so headstrong and so vocal. Yeah. Uh, being gay has been an interesting journey. Again, person of a certain age, when I was a preteen, teen, I knew I was gay, but there was nothing to do about it because you weren't supposed to be gay. There was no other gay people anywhere for me to say, oh, that makes sense. And if there were, they were all white. So I was like, oh, being gay is white. That's not me. When I finally came out in law school, I was kind of like dumped into this black and brown gay community, which was really pretty cool. Yeah. Black, brown, and Asian, actually, community. That was pretty, pretty cool. It was pretty diverse. And I had never known about that. And, you know, I was a little bit exposed to it in D.C. when I lived there, but not that much. You know, as I grew into that community, and saw all the weird heteronormative aspects of gay life uh, in, in predominantly in the Black community, that was a weird transition to find my who I am and be comfortable with myself and not try to put myself into a box in the, in the community. But yeah, the, the black one was the least seamless. The gay was in the middle and the woman has been the, the easiest part. 
You know, it's interesting where um, going back to the matter of identifying as a human being and understanding that um, we have commonalities as human beings. Um, yes, we're both black, but my family's from Haiti. And so um, ethnically, we don't share an identity, but we have had very similar experiences in terms of understanding um, the African-American experience. Um, I learned it like you in school. Assumptions were made. I'd have people ask me, oh, you know, do you eat uh, mac and cheese, collard greens and fried chicken? I'm like, no, no, my our mac and cheese is very different than the way it's prepared by African-Americans or fried chicken isn't breaded. Um, it's cut very meticulously. Um, and so there are differences. And beyond the food, the history is different mm-hmm. between Haitians and African-Americans. And um, in college, um, I had a moment, and I've shared the story on the podcast previously, of um, coming to a place where I thought it would be easiest to um, identify as Black to just adopt my racial identity instead of trying to have people understand the nuances of being Haitian versus African-American. When Mm -hmm. opportunities came up to explain that, I would, but I understood that out in the world, people don't have time for all those questions and quite (laughs) frankly, don't care to ask you all those questions. And while I do want to offer it, it is what it is. So um, I'm Black and, you know, that offers opportunity for solidarity and understanding. But like I totally related to what you were saying there in your experience as a Liberian American. And I may have missed this. Were you born in Liberia? No, I was born here. I was the second person in my family born in the United States, first person raised in the United States. I push the envelope when I get asked the question. I like to have that conversation. So I think that's why that's part of the reason why I say I'm a human being. That's part of the reason why I never tell anybody what I do for work when they ask me what I do. Because if you're going to ask me a question, let's have a conversation. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to ask me how I'm doing, then I'll tell you exactly how I'm doing. I'm not just going to say fine and move on. You've asked me a question. Let's have a conversation. Now, the next time you probably won't ask me the conversation, the, the question, because you don't genuinely want to have a conversation. A lot of people are like, oh, that's kind of cool. I think I'm going to answer the question that way next time. Yeah. Or I didn't think about my life in that way in terms of like who I am and not leading with my profession as who I am, because you're not your profession. You're all these other things that make you who you are. And your profession is just what allows you to pay the bills or allow you to fund whatever you do in life. I feel as though we're in this place now where we um, say DEIJ, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, because there was this failure to recognize that it's not just a matter of having these different people in a community. You have to accommodate them. They have to feel like they belong there. They have to be able to shape the environment as well. And so all these letters keep popping up because there was this idea that we're all the same and just put us in this community and we're going to be able to thrive. And that wasn't the case. I think about the queer community or the gay and lesbian community. And growing up, I didn't hear LGBTQIA+. All of that to me is a function of people wanting to be seen, having their experiences seen and and heard. And because it's not being seen and heard, you have uh, folks saying, well, no, I need a letter in there because you're mm-hmm. failing to understand the nuance of my life experience. Yeah. I mean, I have a tough position on it because it's just at, well, at some point it, it's just going to get too long. Are we going to break up and be different organizations or different um, acronyms? Are we going to find some sort of commonality to bring us together? Because if you feel like you don't, you're not included, then maybe we need to have some sort of educational sit down for why you're not included, how we can understand each other. 
as opposed to just adding another letter because that doesn't really help anybody because then you all are together in your own letter by yourselves, but I don't know what that letter means or what it means to you to have your letter included. So for me, all these inclusions of however many letters are in the rainbow and the plus sign doesn't really help anybody, especially people who are not in the community. So you really need to educate when you're adding letters. Same with DEIJ. Got to educate. Why are you bringing this in? Why, what is it, why, why is this impactful? Why is this meaningful? So that people in the community, in the work, and outside the work can understand and be helpful. And I'm not that old, but I'm old enough not to understand a lot of these new things, yeah. right? A lot of the gender identities, assist this, assist that, the various letters in the rainbow. It gets confusing to me. I am welcoming but I trip up with the language because I came from gay and lesbian, you know, yeah, yeah. and bisexual came in like the mid nineties for a lot of us, but there wasn't a lot else. And then the T came in the nineties as well, but then all the other stuff that keeps popping up, it's difficult to understand it and appreciate it and to understand why it's so important to the people that want it included. I got to tell you the um, thing that is hardest for me as a practitioner is this matter of folks saying, and this goes beyond the gay and lesbian community, um, folks saying, I want to be seen and heard and don't ask me any questions. And, and so it trips me up because, all right, I want to be seen. I could see you with my eyes. I want to be heard. I can hear you with my ears. But if you're saying something that elicits a question for me because I'm not familiar with your life experiences, my natural inclination is to ask a question. And so at this point in my life, I've started to reconcile what do I need to know and what do I want to know and allow my relationship with the person to determine what I ask um, and why. I, I do think it's hard for people to know what is within bounds to ask as people are being asked to be seen and heard. I think that's unfortunate. I think that's very unfortunate. I don't know if that's a generational thing uh, or if it's a point of triggering or pain. What's unfortunate uh, in particular? It's unfortunate that people don't want to have the conversation. They don't want to be asked questions. They don't want to talk. And I don't know if it's a point of trigger or pain. If that's the issue, that's one thing. But if it's just that don't ask me any questions, just, I just want to be me, then you're not helping build the community or build a conversation of learning. I come from a, a, a desire to learn, a desire to educate. And if I don't know something, I'm quick to ask a question. And I hopefully we'll have a conversation, an open conversation where we can make mistakes and we can correct each other, but it could be in a gentle, open conversation. And when you're telling me, don't even ask questions for jump, then, you know, I guess I have to walk away because that's not an interaction I want in my life. But I think that's unfortunate for the person that says that and the person who receives that because there's no opportunity for growth on either end. Yeah, and I think it's the triggering piece that comes up for people, not not wanting to tell a story that's going to elicit negative feelings or, or, or hurtful feelings. And I think the other piece of it is older folks end up feeling like, oh, so I shared this story with you and now my story is supposed to be the story of everybody else in my group. Like mm. you don't understand the nuance of the human experience and that you need to go beyond me to really understand. Right folks. And so I'm wary of sharing with you because I know it starts and ends with me for you. Uh, but see, that's why you just explained that. You go further. You take the time to have an extended conversation. 
But then you have to be with somebody that actually wants to have that conversation. And I, I didn't know in high school or college, I had to tell folks, yo, it doesn't start and end with me. You need to ask more people. I don't know everything about the Black experience. I can only tell you about Stena's experience uh, growing up in Boston and being Haitian and coming from a working class family, et cetera. Yeah. I want to yeah. pivot to a question real quick. Um, you said that um, you came out as gay and law school. Why um, did law school feel like the right time for you to do that? Why not beforehand? Oh, law school didn't feel like the right time. It had nothing to do with law school. I just met somebody who allowed me to be comfortable with myself and exposed me to some communities in New York, New Jersey that allowed me to, to be me. And I guess I was just waiting for that. It would eventually happen. It might have happened later. Earlier, there just wasn't an opportunity. I didn't know anybody. I wasn't feel close enough to anybody to try that experience. I mean, I went to gay bars in college, but again, it was it was very, very, very not my cup of tea. Um, it was a lot of gay boys, didn't know any lesbian bars in, in DC, to be quite honest. And it, it was very, it was very um, racially segregated. Uh, and so I was hanging out with a lot of white people and going to these white gay boy bars. Yeah. And so again, I was just like, all right, well, there's nothing for me. So let me just keep doing what I'm doing, what I'm supposed to be doing. And maybe I'll start to like it or something like that. Law school, I just met somebody my second year of law school. We grew close and she introduced me to her friends. And so the story goes. <laughs> All right. And now you're a lawyer. Yes, I am. And are there many black lawyers? Uh, which field? Corporate litigation yes. or mergers and acquisitions? Both. Corporate litigation? Probably not that many. Are you seeing a lot of women um, in corporate litigation and mergers and acquisitions? Not a lot of women in mergers and acquisitions. There are a lot of women in corporate litigation. My firm is pretty well balanced in terms of women and men, I find, in yeah. terms of the partners, counsel, um, senior associates, things of that nature. Generally, but it's in litigation, not in versus acquisition. I haven't seen that many women in versus and acquisitions. And I'm thinking of the systemic element of this. This goes back to where you go for undergrad and where you go for undergrad is determinant on the sort of high school you come out of. So this goes back to like preschool, really. You went to Phillips Exeter Academy. This is not for the faint of heart. This is for the <laughs> best and brightest. 10% of our student body identifies as Black. Well, hang on, is that high, higher or lower That's than you expected? extremely high. When I was at Exeter, I think there were maybe 45 of us in all four classes. Total? There were not. Yeah, we were very few. Very few. So 10%, that's a lot. And so <laughs> there you go. That's your funnel. Right. And so right. that's the systemic element that folks hear about and they balk at. And it's like, no, mm -hmm. really, this starts as early as elementary school. And if you don't get tracked appropriately, you don't end up learning about opportunities yeah. and mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> I would say that it starts before preschool. It starts at home. You know, yeah. if you're reading at an early age, your parents are reading to you, people in your family know what it means to get a good education from pre-K on. It's huge. I was just talking to one of my softball teammates and we were discussing this and that she works in a public school here in the city and she teaches ESL. And she was mainly saying that her focus now is to help these students who are um, first generation and their parents might not know um, about the 
SSAT, the SSAT to get into private schools or PSAT to prepare for the SAT and tutoring or even filling out a FAFSA, you know, and, and getting your recommendations for your college application or just thinking that stuff through starting earlier and earlier, because it seems like nowadays you have to start that process so early. You have to do all these special languages, special instruments, or, you know, build a website when you're 10 or start an yeah. organization when you're 13, all these things that you have to really concentrate on. But if your parents are just trying to put food on a table, maybe they're both working 16 hour a day jobs and they don't have enough time to sit down with you with your homework. Are they trying to send money back home? You know, there's people back home that are relying on that money. My mom works double shifts, a lot of double shifts when I was growing up, but she also knew about, you know, educational opportunities. And so, you know, I had babysitters that she made them sit with me, do my homework, I had a schedule um, and things of that nature. But if you don't have that, then you'll just get lost. You'll just get lost. And it's not anybody's fault (laughs) besides the fact that, you know, well, okay, it's somebody's fault because there has, there should be somebody somewhere, a guidance counselor that generally tells everybody what's, what's, what's out there. But the guidance counselor usually tracks people and says, all right, y'all are some smart people. Y'all come in this office. Let me tell you about these opportunities. We're not going to tell everybody because it's useless to tell them they're not smart enough. It's already been determined. I remember having that conversation in junior high school um, when I was, uh, before I got into prep nine, they took a few bunch of us and said, y'all are smart enough to do this program. Um, So try out. I was like, wow. We lucked out being in, at the time they had um, SP1, SP2 courses, like special something um, courses. So there were five um, groups in each grade. So it was like SP1, SP2, and then two, three, four, or three, four, five, or something like that. It was a while ago, I forget. But I remember the top two, and all the little black and brown kids from the top two were sent to the guidance counselor office and told about this PrEP 9 program that we were all taking to, to do the test, but nobody else was allowed the opportunity or even told that they could go to a specialized school because there were plenty of specialized schools in New York City at the time, and they only told us. And it's, you know, those people are in the know. They should give everybody the opportunity or at least the knowledge because yeah. even the kids that were in the SP1, they might not have wanted to go to those schools. They might not have wanted to go to college. They might have wanted to get an automotive a degree or or a culinary degree or something of that nature. Not every quote unquote smart kid wants to go to college, wants to go to graduate school. So yeah, it's 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 a lot of it's a lot of errors on a lot of sides. I never thought it could happen. This rapping stuff. I was too used to packing gats and stuff. Now honey's play me close like butter plate toast from the Mississippi down to the East Coast. Condos in Queens, endo for weeks. Sold out seats to hear Hadley speak. Living <laughs> life without fear. Yo, saying Biggie Smalls is the illest. I didn't know that Biggie was rapping about you way back then. Oh, yes, he was. Yes, he was. I, I used to often infuse myself into his rhymes that I'd memorized. Interestingly, mm-hmm. like almost his entire Ready to Die album, I have memorized. And that song in particular, Juicy, um, is one that I know start to finish. And uh, I've referenced it when I've gone into high school classrooms to talk to students in my past life as an, as an admissions counselor, mm-hmm. when I wanted them to know that, you know, this guy, this older guy standing in front of me was down. I would um, cite some Biggie Smalls, particularly Juicy, and they like bobbing their heads like, okay, this dude's with it. This dude's with it. 
But there's so much going on in that song. He's reflecting about his life experiences and his rise from poor to wealthier. In some ways, even though he doesn't name it much in his album, he's talking about the experiences of Black people in this community in Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy in particular. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's really a fascinating album, Ready, Ready to Die. I don't know if folks have heard it. Dope album. Have you listened to that album, Dr. Lee? I can't say I have, certainly not to the closeness you have. But, but now you've I'm heard inspired. Juicy before. Yes, I've heard Juicy before. But now I'm inspired to go back and really look at the lyrics. Yeah, the lyrics are kind of um, bleak. And actually, I'm going to drop another set of bars on you from that album, and you could give me your quick thoughts on it. Uh, when I die, fuck it, I want to go to hell because I'm a piece of shit. It ain't hard to fucking tell. Don't make sense going to heaven with the goody goodies dressed in white. I like black Tims and black hoodies. God will probably have me on some real strict. No sleeping all day and no getting my hanging with the goody goodies lounging in paradise. F that shit. I want to smoke guns and shoot dice. If somebody gave you that, <laughs> you're a counselor. <laughs> Your client came in and gave you this poem that they wrote. What would be some initial questions you ask? Oh, good one. I would ask what they envision that to feel like and be like if they're able to be in that place. And why is that place their choice? Like they're, they're saying, I would rather be in this space, not the not being with the goody goodies. Like I would want to know, well, tell me more. Right? Why is that your choice? And what, ha- what has informed that decision? You went right to the place. What led you to start there? Well, it seems like that's what they were painting for me, right? If I listen to the lyric, they were describing this place and describing what happens in this place. So for me, they're setting the scene for me, you know, setting the stage for me. So that I guess that's what my brain listened for and went for. And often when I'm talking to clients, that's I'm trying to understand their story and the setting of that story and what is in the the tone of that story and yeah, I guess that's that's what I was listening. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So his first album was titled "Ready to Die." That song was titled "Suicidal Thoughts." It's the last track on "Ready to Die," and his second and final album before he was murdered was titled um, "Life After Death." So it's like it doesn't take a rocket scientist mm-hmm. to see like this isn't a very hopeful person. And when you listen to most of their songs, mm-hmm. there's just a lot of um, sadness there. Even though he never comes across as like, yeah, I'm a black man who grew up with like under these conditions that made me this sullen person. It's very clear to me, at least, what he's trying to convey. And so when I had the conversation with Siata and she brought up this matter of identifying as a human being, I was thinking to myself, if I had this conversation with Biggie Smalls, Mm. like, would he simply tell me like, I'm just a man? Or would he get into the aspects of his life that have shaped him? But anyway, this is a, a long intro into my conversation with Dr. Lee, who provides her professional insight about the conversation that I have with my featured guest. In this case, it was Siata Besa. And I'm hanging on this matter of identifying as a human being mm. um, that started our conversation. Were you struck by that at all, Dr. Lee? I was, and uh, I want to respond to something you just said. I guess I'm trying to figure out identifying as a human being. Is that the starting point or is that the ending point? Like did someone like Biggie or Sierra 
do they get to that space of like, I'm, I'm a man or, you know, I'm just a man or I'm just a human being. Did they start with that? Or did they get to that because of experience that they had along the way that for them identifying that way made more sense? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And can okay. you talk about the difference there, starting and ending with this thought of being just a human being? Yeah, I'll give an example. So I don't want to reference Biggie because I'm not as educated as, as you are um, with his lyrics, but knowing what you just said, you know, he might come out and just say, you know what, after all that, I'm just a man trying to survive. Like I'm just trying to live. Right. So to me, that sounds like and feels like informed by his lyrics, that it's a place where he landed. Like I'm just trying to be out here doing something. And I think what Siet, that the, your guest shared. So to me, it's more of perhaps other identities have not jived or I've been hurt or struggled. There's been a journey that somebody's gotten to. So now they're saying, you know what? This is the identity that I want. Just I'm just a man or I'm just a human being. To me, that's where they landed. The flip side of that, and I'll bring a little closer to home in, in the psychology world or clinical world. Oftentimes you might hear clinicians that say, you know what? Every human being's human, right? We all have a brain. We all have a central nervous system. We all respond to our environments. Um, depression is depression. Anxiety is anxiety. We're all human. And to me, that's where they're starting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and the problem with that is that if you start with that, you're missing a lot of the nuance and context of a person whose body is living in their particular life. Yeah. And so it, it to me, as a clinician, when I interact with a fellow clinician who just says, you know, depression is depression, anxiety is depre- anxiety, a human's human, brain's a brain, it feels a little lazy to me. It, and it feels a little dismissive of, of other factors that informs how a person experiences the world. Hold on. Do you actually encounter people who say this stuff? Really? Like yeah. somebody could go through graduate school and a PhD program and come away with this thinking? Well, I think we've improved as a field significantly, but I think that there's definitely a generation of clinicians and maybe even folks that still practice that said it's more about the science, you know, but we know more now that the science will even say that, you know, African-Americans metabolize medication differently, Asian-American, you know, Asian folks um, metabolize medication differently. We now know better, but oh yeah. There's definitely still people out there that I think that's the starting point. We're all human. I'm, it's the same thing that we've talked about before in terms of like, I'm colorblind. I see all, you know, it's like, yeah. no, there to me, know. that's lazy. And I don't think that's where I guess was trying to say. And I don't think that's what Biggie would have said, you know, if he came to the point of like, yo, I'm just a man. Yeah. Interestingly, like thinking about Biggie Small still, I listened to both of his albums many times. I've listened to the songs repeatedly. It's very rare that he makes reference to his racial identity. He sprinkles in the ethnicity. His mom is Jamaican. He was born in New York City, however. He spends a whole lot of time talking about masculinity Mm. or, or what we would term toxic masculinity and socioeconomic status, particularly like coming from being poor to being very wealthy. Um, Siada has a language. I don't think she's at the start of a journey of thinking about how she identifies. And so 
given that she identifies as a human being first and foremost to me is like intentional mm. right like is that fair to conclude that it's an intentional desire to not really think about herself in these categories it certainly sounds like that and that'd be a great question for Sierra to to respond for themselves but it certainly sounds like that yeah and i just wondered if she was conveying exhaustion mm. in talking about you know i'm a human being you know, was she tired of seeing how difference has been stigmatized in her life? Was she tired of being asked to share her thoughts as a person who has marginalized identities? In general, just tired of all the things that come with these identities. And I get it. So the question is, is it unfair for me to read this desire to simply be a human being as fatigue? I think it's quite reason reasonable. And this brings up a, a part of the conversation where she said, you know, she identifies more with the term gay and not other terms that the LGBTQA plus community have used. And, and she talked about it being perhaps generational and that even they can't, you know, she can't keep up with some of the terms. And I think there's gotta be some fatigue in that. And maybe the fatigue is more of, I know who I am. I don't need to prove myself just to be up to the latest lingo, you know? And, and I can appreciate that. If you didn't know about Biggie Smalls before listening to the podcast, now you know. For the ones that already did, I'm sure you appreciated the trip down memory lane. I know I did. Anyway, I'm so glad I had this conversation with Tiara on the podcast. Ordinarily, I'm in lockstep with my guests, but in this one, that wasn't always the case. And that was okay. I didn't come away from the conversation frustrated or with hurt feelings. I didn't regret inviting Siata to be a guest by any means either. As a matter of fact, I was happy to have a guest who was essentially saying that we should reconsider the binary framework that often underlies these arguments about race and sexuality, and that we need to talk more across difference. I'm a big believer in dialogue. It's why I have this podcast. I also believe that folks with marginalized identities are often expected to do the heavy lift of educating while often being muted. That's exhausting and a tough way to exist. Until the next episode of Identity in Me, keep reflecting. Identity in me. Identity in me.